Hello, my name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Welcome. Welcome back. Thanks, everyone, for checking out the show. If this is your first time here, well, hello. Episode number five. All episodes are now up on YouTube. I added them over the weekend. So if that is how you find your murder stories, hello, YouTube. Follow the show online, Crime of the Truest Kind, at Crime of the Truest Kind on Instagram and Facebook, and Truest Kind on Twitter. And of course, subscribe and like and rate on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you find your murder stories. Thank you so much for that. That's so very helpful. I've been really enjoying digging deep into these New England murder stories, and today will be no different. Today, I would like to tell you the story of Charles Stewart in the Boston murder hoax. is a city with a population of about 692,000 people as of 2019. Small. It's only grown from about 574,000 and change as reported in the 1990 census. It's one of the top walking cities in the country, full of narrow winding streets, alleys, and one ways, and old cobblestones. I've heard it called quaint. It's a major commuter hub with 60% of the city's workforce. That's nearly 230,000 who come into the city during peak morning rush hour. The mass transit system is easy to navigate, but it is riddled with problems. Like when it rains, the subways flood. We joke how as fares rise, service drops. The likelihood that you'll be late for work, even if you leave an hour early, are better than ever. There are a lot of what the fucks and you've got to be kidding me's. And also, is that pee? There's really little incentive to take public transportation over driving your own car. A lot of people drive into the city, causing traffic to suck worse. But you can still get to the city in less time than it takes you to drive across the city. Boston is rich with colleges and universities and student dorm life and crazy rents and shitty landlords and bougie neighborhoods and high-end shops, biotech firms, and on the frontier of scientific discovery. And over all of this, Boston houses some of the best hospitals in the country. If you need medical attention, Boston is a very good place to get it. We have a rich history of music and politics. Oh, and sports. You've probably heard that. It is a relatively safe city. And as a student in the 90s, and later doing the commuter hustle, I have never felt unsafe. Whether it was walking the city streets, grabbing a cab at any hour, hopping on the T, we call it the subway, short for MBTA, Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority. Boston is a safer place than it was in the late 1980s, credited in part to the collaborative efforts of law enforcement in the community. Cops in the community, neighborhoods, and churches working together. The murder rate dropped to 38 murders in Boston in 2019. In 1989, there were 102 reported homicides in the city of Boston. Here are two of them.
On the evening of October 23rd, 1989, that's 31 years ago, holy shits, I can remember the story really well, Boston was rocked by one of the most notorious crime cases in the city's history. It was the start of a quake that rattled the city for months, causing damage we will never recover from. Harm on so many levels was bestowed on that night. This story contributes to the dirty legacy of racism in Boston and unleashed a torrent of ill will and anger across the city and in communities of color everywhere. We will get back to that night. The story of Carol and Charles Stewart is one of the most highly publicized and emotionally charged murder cases in the history of the city and maybe the country. It began with a husband and wife, a young, successful white couple living in the suburbs. Dinks! Dual income, no kids, as they called them. I guess yuppies now, or something even far worse. The woman was Carol DeMady, who grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, six miles from Boston. And if you get on the orange line on the T, you can be in downtown Boston in 15 minutes on a good day. Again, the T has its share of problems. Amelia Earhart lived here. Mike Bloomberg grew up here. So did film and TV actress Julianne Nicholson. She played John Connolly's wife in Black Mass. TV host Maria Menounos and reportedly the husband of tennis superstar Serena Williams, who also is the co-founder of Reddit, Alexis Ohanian. Comic Robert Kelly is from Medford. Paul Geary, former drummer of Extreme and now manager of bands like Godsmack and Joe Perry. And Hoobastank, that band made a lot of money with that very stupid name. And maybe most infamous of all is Elizabeth Short. She set her sights on stardom, moving to Los Angeles in 1946, but whose identity will be better recognized as the Black Dahlia, after her dead body was found cut in two and left in a desolate area of the city. While there are many theories, her death remains unsolved. And maybe I will do an episode on the Black Dahlia one day. First things first. The quote on Carol DeMady's senior yearbook showed her goals were simple. To be a teacher, to get married, and to have a happy family. She had a sheltered life as the youngest of two, and the only girl protected by her close-knit, working-class Roman Catholic family. She was traditional, as they say, and longed for her version of what was considered the American dream for a young white girl from Medford, Massachusetts. She went to St. James School, the Catholic school down the street from her parents' house, and graduated from Medford High School in 1977. Went on to Boston College and got a bachelor's degree in political science in 1981, graduating with honors. She took a year off, worked waiting tables, and prepared to attend Suffolk University Law, where she would eventually earn her law degree in 1986. People who knew Carol from school said she was always happy, a shining light. She was never in a bad mood. By the time Carol started at Suffolk in 1983, she had met a tall, handsome guy from Revere, an altar boy. Something that was a strange kind of accomplishment in old-timey Boston. It was before the stories of the church scandal that made everyone wonder if their local priest was a pedophile. The guy, about her age, was Charles Stewart. Chuck, as he was known. A cook at the now-closed Italian restaurant, The Driftwood, in Revere. It's the town where the Stewarts grew up. A very towny town. Bridge and tunnel. Blue collar. It's got a dog track and a Kelly's roast beef. And the blue line and a sandcastle competition on the beach every summer. His father, Charles Stewart Sr., was an insurance salesman and a part-time bartender. His mother, Dorothy, was a switchboard operator. Theirs was a regular middle-class life, with kids who went to the Immaculate Conception Catholic Elementary School. The Stewarts were a family of four boys and two half-sisters. 
They lived in a modest red cape on a dead-end street. A young Charles Stewart was into sports and claimed he played football well, but in real life, he actually played baseball poorly. He was an average fielder and a poor hitter, his former coach Dennis Bisso told the New York Times. He also played basketball, also not well. He did have a kind of charm that attracted the attention of women, those rugged good looks, a polite way of saying he was decent looking. Friends say he went to college on a football scholarship. More on that, and it offers a hint into his character. One thing Charles Stewart was good at was cooking. He went to Northeast Metro Vocational High School in nearby Wakefield, a trade school with alternating weeks of coursework and trade. And by sophomore year, Stewart had chosen culinary arts, spending every other week working in the kitchen, running the school's restaurant, the Breakheart Inn. He graduated in 1977 and got a job cooking at the Driftwood, making $4 an hour. Carol was pulling waitressing shifts while she was home from Boston College. And Chuck was popular with the ladies, and Carol fell for him. Her dad, Justo, was the bartender in the Driftwood, and he did not like this clown. Carol had broken up with a guy at school, like her, was Italian-American. His name may have ended in a vowel. They weren't particularly psyched about this, what, English guy? Stuart? S-T-U-A-R-T? I'll go with English. I don't know any better. They dated for a while, and friends said Carol was the outgoing one in the couple. She wore her heart on her sleeve and talked openly about her problems. Chuck was quiet, reserved, sort of an introverted one. The keep-it-to-yourself guy. Something worked for them. Chuck proposed to Carol on Christmas Eve, 1983. They put the wedding on hold for about two years. Carol wanted to get through school. And then she got a job as an accountant with the accounting firm Arthur Young & Company in downtown Boston. She started at a salary of more than $30,000 a year. Now, in 1983, $30,000 is the purchasing power equivalent of about $78,000 in 2020. They were doing all right. Carol and Chuck got married on October 14, 1985, at Carol's family church, St. James, in Medford. By then, Chuck had moved on from line cook to a swanky gig at the high-end Newbury Street fur retailer, Cacus Furs, working his way to the general manager position by 1988. He went from $4 an hour on the line to Lux Retail, pulling in more than $100,000 a year by 1989. That's progress. That's the equivalent of about $209,000 in 2020? I guess they were doing all right. In the summer of 1987, Carol took a new job as a tax attorney with Connors Publishing in Newton. In August of that year, the Stewarts paid $239,000 for a split-level house in the more affluent town of Reading. It was quite the suburban oasis with a pool and a jacuzzi and a landscape lawn. The American dream, I suppose. They were often seen out in the yard with their two big dogs, described as Labradors by one neighbor. They hosted pool parties and cookouts for friends and relatives. Chuck was even known to help neighbors shovel snow. What a guy. We also learn later that all of this domesticity is off-putting for Chuck Stewart. He was holding on to his dream of opening that restaurant. All of this, and he had no real training. Aside from his high school culinary arts studies and his short-order cook gig at the Driftwood and maybe a couple of classes at Salem State College. There's the story of him going to Brown University, 
on a football scholarship, but being forced to drop out after a knee injury. That had been floated by the press and a couple of friends who he had reportedly told. But a spokesperson for Brown said there was no record of Stewart even applying to the school. And an official at Salem State College said that Stewart enrolled there in September 1979, but dropped out two months later. Hmm. Red flag. The prospect of moving to Reading apparently left Carol with pause, too. A co-worker at her new job recalled Carol asking whether they should go through with the purchase of the house in Reading or use the profits from the sale of their Medford home to buy a restaurant. Carol was open about Chuck's desire to put off starting a family until they were able to save money for a restaurant. He was spitting a dream to recreate the art of personal service where people remember your name. Like cheers, I guess. He wanted to offer that. Interesting how thoughtful he was about caring for strangers, huh? The move to Connor's publishing was beneficial for Carol in a number of ways. It was more money, she was practicing law, and it would give her time to get an advanced degree in tax law at Boston University by taking night classes. She completed about half the coursework by the 1989 fall term and took a leave to prepare for the baby's arrival. Carol had every intention to return to school in the fall of 1990. They really did seem like the perfect couple on the surface. That fall, a close friend of Carol and Chuck's revealed that Chuck had complained to them during a night out that he had noticed something about his pregnant wife, Carol, something that he had never seen before, that she had the upper hand in their marriage. The friend, David F. McLean, told the New York Times in January 1990 that Stewart was upset that his wife had refused to get an abortion, and he was worried that she would not go back to her job as a lawyer after giving birth and that the couple's income would take a hit. Stewart then made a horrifying proposal. He asked for help in killing Carol Stewart. McLean gave this account in an interview with WCVB-TV Channel 5 in Boston, and reportedly it was repeated to a grand jury. Yet nobody came forward when Carol got shot in the head. Oh, no spoiler. Carol gets shot in the head. Here's more. This appears to be the closest anyone can get into a motive behind why a seemingly normal and decent husband and father-to-be would obliterate his family. Now, this is 1989. This is before Susan Smith in North Carolina, the woman who killed her own kids, but blamed it on a black man for stealing her car with the kids inside. This is before the explosion of television sensationalism of white Broncos and the O.J. Simpson case. This is before Scott Peterson killed Lacey Peterson and their son Connor to hook up with his clueless girlfriend. She caught on quickly, no offense to Amber Fry. She did not know anything about his plan to murder his wife and baby. And this was long before Chris Watts blew up his entire family. Fucking hate that guy. And I hate that story. Let me take you back to that night. On the evening of October 23rd, 1989, Carol DeMady Stewart was a 30-year-old lawyer and seven and a half months pregnant with her first baby, a boy. She was over the moon and preparing for his arrival. He was due on December 26th, yes, the day after Christmas. She and her husband of four years, Charles, attended a birthing class at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It is located in the Longwood neighborhood of hospitals in Boston proper, where the world-renowned Boston Children's Hospital is a six-minute walk. Dana-Farber Cancer Center is even closer. The Museum of Fine Arts is nearby, as is the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, known locally as Mass Art. 
It's a bustling area of students and interns and doctors and nurses and hospital workers and tourists and city dwellers. Shortly before 9 p.m., a call came into the Massachusetts State Police Cellular Emergency Dispatch Center. A man was calling from inside his car. Now, in 1989, we still had to get off the couch to change the TV channel. So mobile phones were like Jetsons flying cars, like Rosie the Robot cleaning your house. It wasn't like it is today. Toddlers have iPhones now. The state police contacted Boston police and connected the caller to help navigate the whereabouts of their car so they could pinpoint their location and send paramedics. That caller was Charles Stewart. He told police that he and Carol were carjacked while headed home to Reading from their class at the Brigham. The assailant, who had a gun, got into the car at Huntington Avenue and Francis Street near the hospital and told them to drive to the Mission Hill section of the city. While in the backseat of the car, he shot what I assume was a visibly pregnant Carol Stewart and shot Chuck Stewart in the stomach. An early theory in the case was that the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, saw the car phone and thought they were cops. Chuck was unable to identify their location. Carol was in grave condition and had a gunshot wound to the head. There are a lot of odd occurrences related to this night that do not add up. But what are the chances that the crew of the national TV show Rescue 911 is in production in the city of Boston on that night? The footage that aired on the show was not a recreation. It was shot while the production team was doing a ride-along with the Boston Emergency Medical Service. Captain James T. Kirk himself, William Shatner, is the show's host, and he sets up the footage of the scene that night. Carol is in very serious condition, in cardiac arrest, when they reach her. She is seen being removed from the car, and it is heart-wrenching at the time. And to know now what led to this moment, you hear a very concerned Chuck Stewart asking how his wife is. And then the emergency responder asking, did you see who did this? A very lucid and talkative Stewart tells them a black man and continues in great detail about what happened. He had a lot of info and what the police called a lot of recall. He sure told a great tale. Meanwhile, it was critical to get Carol to the hospital immediately to deliver the baby if he had any chance of survival. Carol was back at Brigham and Women's less than an hour after leaving her birthing class for an emergency C-section. Christopher, as he was named, was born eight weeks early and had to fight to stay alive. Carol lost a lot of blood and wasn't conscious. Stewart was rushed to Boston City Hospital with significant life-threatening abdominal injuries. Lucky him. Carol died within hours. Stewart went through surgery and would make a full recovery in time. The police and the emergency response team were praised for their response while pressure mounted to locate the man who Stewart said, with such clarity and recall, had attacked and robbed them. The local media fueled racial tensions. They sensationalized the story to sell papers. Local news stations were trying to scoop each other. The shootings triggered serious reaction. Leaders were screaming for vengeance. Sorry, that's a really inappropriate Judas Priest reference. Told you, rock. Mayor Ray Flynn called for any means necessary, ordering Boston Police Commissioner Francis Roach to send all available resources to look for the killer. He directed more than 100 extra police officers to infiltrate Mission Hill and the surrounding neighborhoods. 
Men and boys in Boston's Black communities were hunted and harassed. Communities that continued to suffer overt racism in the city. It became a war zone of officers lining up men and boys in the streets. Two days into the investigation, a profile of the man they sought was being built. Investigators were convinced that the gunman either lives in or routinely commits crimes around the Mission Hill housing project. Police sources believe that jumping into cars at city intersections was an MO for the assailant. I'll tell you again, lock your damn doors. Don't let people be jumping in your car. No time was wasted. They wanted a deterrent for crime. Calls were coming demanding that Massachusetts reinstate the death penalty. Pitchforks, torches, fire, brimstone. Why was law enforcement so quick to buy this guy's story? The Stewart murder case remains the most highly publicized and emotionally charged murder case in the history of Boston and solidifies the legacy of racism. Sorry, Boston. That is on us. The newspaper reading public was getting force-fed a steady diet of fright. For a blue state full of academics and progressives, we still have not fully faced systemic racism. We get uncomfortable when people address it. It's everywhere, yes. But we're talking about Boston, a city where a white man is photographed trying to impale a black man with an American flag over desegregation in schools in the 1970s. We have a very public history. The first week into the manhunt for the man identified only as a black man with a raspy voice wearing a black tracksuit with a red stripe, police arrested a potential suspect. The murder of Carol Stewart took place exactly six months after the Central Park jogger case cracked Manhattan and the nation wide open. Made so much more harmful, so much more dangerous when it was weaponized by a sensationalized press. It tapped right into white fear. I'm not going to get into the Central Park Five here, but they were all exonerated finally in 2002. The world was hungry for the death penalty for those five boys. Charles Stewart is lucky he fucked up and shot himself in the gut. He meant to shoot himself in the foot, and we're not talking a folksy phrase here. He was actually planning to shoot himself in a limited pain area. He certainly did not mean to critically injure himself. The injury was life-threatening. He could have died by his accidental shooting. But it totally worked in his favor and ignited a fearful public. The Boston Herald played up the grief and the suspense and the sensationalism by cashing in on the glory of Camelot, comparisons that alluded to New England's celebration of the Kennedy dynasty. A family that has been visited by so much misery, it's difficult to imagine anyone wanting to be aligned with that. Assassinations aside, Ted Kennedy left a woman to drown in a car at Chappaquiddick on Martha's Vineyard. John Kennedy Jr., a reportedly inexperienced pilot, crashed his plane off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, killing everyone on board, including his wife Carolyn Bassett and her sister Lauren. Stories for another show, indeed. Carol DeMady Stewart never got to meet her son. They were in a race to save him. She never regained consciousness and died around 3 a.m. on October 24th. Her son was just a few hours old. Christopher William Stewart lived for 17 whole days. He died on the afternoon of November 9, 1989 at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he was due to be born that December had his mother not been shot in the back of the head. He suffered from hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, HIE, 
meaning his brain was deprived of oxygen and blood flow for a period of time. The baby showed no signs of brain activity at birth, and the decision was made to take him off life support. Charles Stewart was transported by ambulance to his infant son's bedside to say goodbye. It's not so heart-wrenching, though, when the world learns the truth. With the baby's death, this was now a double homicide. The desire for vengeance was even stronger now. A homeless man named Alan Swanson was squatting in an apartment building in the Mission Hill housing projects, in the area where the Stewart's car was found. He fit the description Stewart had given, and he had a sweatsuit that was soaking in water in the apartment. Have you seen photos from the late 80s? Tracksuits were hot. Everybody at them. Alan Swanson was harassed mercilessly in jail. Guards spit in his food. They banged on the cell doors at night to scare him. The attorney who represented him got so many death threats that the assistants in his office refused to answer the phones, and he was told to wear a bulletproof vest. The city was out for blood. Even while they had a suspect in custody, the stop-and-frisk method of policing continued. They were banging down doors in Mission Hill without knocking, pulling out black kids. It remains a shameful time in Boston's history, one we will not get over. That and busing. Listen back to the Whitey Bulger episodes on that. Alan Swanson was held as a suspect for three weeks. Then, a Mission Hill resident by the name of Willie Bennett was picked up as a possible perpetrator. Willie Bennett himself admits he was no angel, with a long criminal record. In a 2017 interview with WBZ-TV4, Willie said, I know I didn't do it. They know I didn't do it. It's just that I had a reputation in the projects, and everything that happened in Mission Hill, they were considering it was me. On December 28th, two months after Carol was killed, Stuart was out of the hospital and recovering when the police told him of the possibility of a new suspect. He had a strong physical reaction when shown Bennett in the police lineup. The city wanted this case solved, and the authorities proved they'd stop at nothing to find the killer. Carol was gone. Baby Christopher was gone. Charles Stewart was recovering and making his way back to a normal life. No one else would be able to do that. Definitely not the Demades. 1990 rolled in, and the case was about to blow up with new revelations. After Charles Stewart ID'd Willie Bennett as the man who'd shot them that night in October, Stewart's younger brother Matthew had been dealing with a greater sense of guilt over his involvement and went to the police a few days later. He'd spoken to his family at a holiday gathering on January 2nd, and it was learned that Stewart's siblings, six in all, had some knowledge that Chuck was responsible for Carol and Christopher's deaths. On January 3rd, 1990, Matthew Stewart went to the police. The story he told them was that on the night of the shooting, he had gone to the scene to help Charles commit what he believed was insurance fraud. Matthew Stewart said his brother handed him a handbag that contained a gun and some jewelry. He went to Revere and threw it off a bridge into the Pines River near their childhood home. Charles Stewart spent the night of January 3rd at the Sheridan Terra Hotel in Braintree. To elude capture, one could surmise. He then reportedly confessed to his attorney, 
and drove to the Tobin Bridge and jumped into the icy Mystic River below. His brand new car was found on the side of the upper deck of Tobin Bridge. I would guess if we were coming from Braintree heading into Chelsea. Quiz time, locals. Would you be on the upper deck or the lower deck of the Tobin Bridge if you were coming from Braintree driving into Chelsea? Damn me. Charles Stewart left a note inside that car, written on hotel stationery, but never admitting to guilt, only that the latest revelation that he was implicated in the crime was too much for him to bear, and he was beaten down, and that it had sapped his strength. Really, guy? And for a minute, it was up for consideration that he'd faked it, that he didn't really jump, until the next day when divers pulled his body from the river. It made the front page of all the papers you bet it did. And there is this local folklore that he was killed and his dead body was dumped off the bridge. Who would do that and why? To all of that, though, I say no. The report states this, that at 6.50 a.m., Chelsea police report an abandoned black car on the Tobin Bridge over the Mystic River. A body was spotted 300 feet below, and six hours later, he was pulled from the water. In identifying the body as Charles Stewart, the medical examiner said his abdomen still contained the bullet that authorities think he fired into himself. The story does not end there. So Charles Stewart is dead. He jumped off a bridge. Everybody knows he shot Carol. And then, everybody that dealt with him comes out of the woodwork with a story once the news goes public. Oh boy. Many friends and relatives had stories suggesting Stewart floated killing his wife. You may recall the story of Dinner with Friends, where the guy said Carol had the upper hand. Matthew Stewart once spoke about a foiled robbery plot at the Reading House. Was the plan to take Carol out then? The Stewart siblings, the three brothers and the two sisters, had known about his involvement in the killing before Matthew Stewart went to the police on January 3rd. There are recordings of Brother Michael, a Revere firefighter at the time, talking to one of the sisters. Divers continued to search for the gun in the Pines River near where Matthew Stewart told investigators he had ditched it the night of the shooting. They eventually recover Carol's Gucci bag containing her wallet and other belongings, presumably her diamond engagement ring and her wedding band. Most of these people appear to be completely comfortable with a black guy from Mission Hill taking the rap, I guess. Matthew Stewart's admission about his part in the shooting dramatically changed the focus of the investigation. Though investigators have said Charles Stewart wasn't ruled out as a suspect, yet they kept chasing down black men in Mission Hill. Matthew Stewart's confession led Suffolk District Attorney Newman Flanagan to order police to arrest Charles Stewart for the murders. Matthew Stewart's lawyer, John Perenni, said that Matthew wrestled with his conscience for months after he realized he was an accomplice to murder. Matthew followed his brother's orders that night to stand by at a specific location in the Mission Hill section of Boston. Evidently, Matthew Stewart did not notice that Carol was shot in the head when an injured Charles Stewart handed a pocketbook to him out the window. Okay. Oh, and there was money. Several insurance policies were taken out on Carol Stewart, totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars. Stewart had collected about $82,000 from a policy provided by Carol's company, Connor Publishing. One of the two the couple had taken out two weeks before the shooting. Charles Stewart used some of that money in the form of a $10,000 certified check to buy the new Nissan Maxima he abandoned on the bridge that day. Matthew Stewart was going to get $10,000 for his part in the fraud scheme. 
He stands by the fact that he did not know that Charles Stewart was going to kill Carol that night. And another accomplice, John McMahon, threw the gun into the river as a favor, but said he didn't know the gun was used to kill Carol. Friend and best man at their wedding, Brian Parsons, was going to go into the restaurant business with Chuck Stewart. Parsons said he didn't know about the murder plot either. According to the Boston Globe, a check was made out to Stewart for $480,000, the proceeds for a life insurance policy from Prudential Insurance Company on the day he killed himself. Investigators believe he stood to gain about $660,000 from three separate policies. That's a lot. And a huge red flag when it is learned that Carol would tell friends she couldn't understand why Chuck took so much insurance out on her. What? A gun had been stolen from the safe at Caicos and Sun Furs, the luxury Newbury Street boutique Charles Stewart managed. The store owners never checked until after Charles Stewart was implicated in the murders. A 38 caliber snub-nosed revolver was found in Pines River by divers that matched this missing weapon. That gun sat unused in that safe for more than 10 years before Charles Stewart stole it to kill his wife. There have been rumors of a romantic relationship with a woman from the boutique, but there was never really evidence of a relationship, except, though, for the 22-year-old woman who worked at the store for two summers and had been using Stewart's telephone calling card number to contact him several times at the hospital. Stewart had also bought some high-end jewelry, and I don't know if they ever sorted out who that was for or why he was buying it. It all remains a mystery. Officials from the Boston Police Department, Mayor Ray Flynn, and District Attorney Flanagan held a press conference where the mayor said that the city had been the victim of a bizarre hoax that smeared its reputation in national news accounts of the shootings. Hmm. Despite the fact that they held Willie Bennett because Stewart said he looked most like his attacker in the eight-man lineup arranged by the Boston police. Countless flaws emerged from what they called a near-perfect crime. Charles Stewart falsely implicated a black man, and in doing so further tarnished the view of race relations in Boston. He almost got away with it. But he involved too many people. His brother Matthew and friends and other family members. People who knew didn't say anything, and they were under no obligation, said attorney John Dolly, who was representing Charles Stewart at the time. But morally and ethically, there are different standards. Don't we know it? And the Demades were heartbroken. Not only did they lose their beloved only daughter, but also their first grandchild. The family was devastated to learn that their son-in-law, the man who they celebrated holidays with, was responsible for the death of Carol and Christopher. They didn't let it destroy them. In early 1990, the Demades, Dad Justo, Mom Evelyn, and Brother Carl, announced the Carol Demady Stewart Foundation and its focus on Boston's Mission Hill neighborhood, which became the subject of a cruel and exhaustive manhunt for a non-existent black assailant created by Charles Stewart to scapegoat his own evil doings. He shook the hive of the city's historically tense race relations and set a course that the city will never recover from, even 31 years later. The Foundation Scholarship Fund was set up to support minority students from the Mission Hill neighborhood because the Demades wanted their daughter to be remembered as more than a victim of a sensational crime. They wanted to begin the process of civic healing. The Foundation has since closed, but during their most active years, 
They gave $1.5 million in scholarships to students in need. One student who received a scholarship award from the foundation was Amet St. Guyen. She was kidnapped and murdered in New York City by a bouncer who was working in the Soho bar she was at. Emet's death helped change the way bouncers were employed at nightclubs and bars. One of these episodes, I will tell you more about Emet. So, what happened after that? Was anyone charged? Yes. After a 22-month investigation came to an end in September 1991, Matthew Stewart was indicted for obstruction of justice and insurance fraud for his role in the crime. That friend, John McMahon, who tossed the gun into the river, was indicted as an accessory after the fact. Matthew Stewart pleaded guilty in 1992 and was sentenced to three to five years in prison. He was released on parole in 1997, but was later arrested for cocaine trafficking. Tragedy breeds tragedy. Matthew Stewart was found dead in a homeless shelter in Cambridge, Massachusetts on September 3, 2011. Life did not go well for him. It is believed that there are three motives for murder. Money, sex, and revenge. Criminologists will tell you this. Charles Stewart wanted money. Despite the fact that he was really doing very well financially, even by 1989 standards, he held on to this selfish dream to open a restaurant and saw his pending fatherhood as a roadblock. There's nothing wrong with wanting things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see your dreams come to fruition. But his was a very flawed approach. Stewart spoke openly about being pissed off that he felt Carol had gotten the upper hand in their marriage. That is some real sexist bullshit, by the way. And he feared she wouldn't go back to work once the baby came, thus affecting their financial status and his plan to open a restaurant. Carol Stewart did nothing wrong. If she is guilty of anything, it's trusting this dick cheese wannabe Bobby Flay. She loved him, and she wanted good things for him. Unfortunately, he did not want that for her. There are many takeaways from the Stewart case, like... Don't be so fast to believe the word of a lying, murderous white dude. And be very, very concerned if someone takes $600,000 in life insurance out on you. That's what I call a big, fat red flag. I will be back in two weeks with another New England crime story. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. Keep safe. We are in a pandemic after all. Follow the show, rate, and review. Of course, everything up at crimeofthetruestkind.com. Thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend and lock your goddamn doors. 